Okay, so we are continuing our look at the book of Matthew, and uh, if you haven't already, you can be there in Matthew 3. It'll also be up here on the screen as we go through. So today, um, we're going to be looking at John the Baptizer, and we're going to be looking at what he did. And so I'm going to start off with just our main idea, because it's going to inform how we look at all of this. And so here's our main idea. For everyone, saved and unsaved, repentance is the only path to the king. For everyone, saved and unsaved, repentance is the only path to the king. So we've been looking at King Jesus. We've been looking at the coming of Jesus. We've looked at his genealogy. We looked at his birth. We looked at the the events surrounding the arrival of the Magi. Um, And now we are looking at the one who is preparing the way. It's almost, you know, so far, it's almost been like a checklist, you know, of Old Testament prophecies. So we had, okay, he needs to be of David, check. Born of a virgin, check. Born in Bethlehem, check. Flees to Egypt, comes back from Egypt, check. Nazarene, check. And we see these throughout, but this is, this is a way to understand biblical prophecy, but it's not quite as full as it needs to be. We miss out a little bit if we read the Old Testament as Here's these specific check marks off of what Jesus is doing. There's more to it than that. So the first thing we're going to do, we're going to need to do a little, little schoolwork here to kind of correct our understanding of how to read the Old Testament. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about how not to read the Old Testament, specifically how not to read the prophecies that are in the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but when I read something like this Matthew passage, I go, hmm, Look at those Old Testament writers. They dropped a little tidbit here, a little, a, little, a little Easter egg over here. And if I'm really sharp, or if I just use books written by people who are really sharp, I can catch all the little, the little hidden things, kind of like a, a super fan who watches a movie and goes, oh yeah, that's from this and that's from that. I'm pretty sure I, I annoy my wife in pointing out in all of the superhero movies, well, that's from this one and that's from that one and this is this person. Sometimes it makes it better, but I think most of the time it makes it worse. So as we're looking at this, we're, we're going and we're going, look at all these check marks he hit. Oh, isn't that sweet? But see, that is sweet. The Lord did make it crystal clear. Here are some specific ways that Jesus is going to match up to what is predicted. And he makes them crystal clear because I think a lot of us have a hard time catching them. And I think that's great. And praise the Lord, people have become believers because all of the hundreds of prophecies that Jesus hit. But there's more to it than that. There's a three-dimensional aspect of the Old Testament that we miss if we just look at it as check marks as we go through. So Matthew is steeped in the Old Testament. And what he's done is he's taken these little check marks and made them into handholds, or, or if you will, it's to, to make an, a drawing of Jesus, of the one that's promised, except for it's just an outline, right? And so we look at it and we go, yeah, an outline, you can kind of tell what something is based on the outline, but isn't it better when you can see the three-dimensional high-definition version? And that's what happens when we understand what the Old Testament is saying. See, the Old Testament is, is revelation veiled, and the New Testament is revelation revealed. It's opened up. So this fleshed out, this fleshed out version of Jesus 
is even more fleshed out when we know our Bible, when we know our Old Testament, as we see it and see it more. So how is this possible? Is it just coincidence? Is it just like, well, I'm reading here and, and, and it's just a coincidence that Jesus matches up? No. The entirety of the Bible is written by God. And as we look through it, there is not a word in the Bible. Yes, even all of those names in order, even all of those numbers, even in all of those prophecies where there's something weird happening and I can't understand, are there on purpose. And I'm going to tell you what they're there for. They're there to point us to Christ. That's the entire purpose of it. And, 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 the, and the flaw is not in the Old Testament that, oh, the Old Testament, they should have been clearer. No, the flaw is in us. We need more of the Spirit. We need to know our Bibles more because the more we know, the more it points to Christ, the more solid this Jesus that we're reading about here in Matthew becomes. Because all of Scripture points to this. Now, if you look at it, today's passage, we're going to see in verse 3, Isaiah 40 verse 3 is quoted. And it's literally, they say, this is the prophecy. But even more so than that, we're going to see kind of some flavors of Elijah in there. We're going to see some other prophecies coming into place. And let me give you an example of what it's like to see this. This last week, I had the preaching meeting with Travis and Eric. Eric's preaching up at Westland. Travis is preaching at Wilsonville. Travis has been reading Isaiah a, a chapter a day for the entire year so far. He's just pouring himself into the book of Isaiah. And Eric, in his Bible reading plan, had just got done reading the first 10 chapters of Isaiah. And it was crazy to watch these two. I just sat back. I mean, if I had popcorn, I would have had popcorn watching these two because they were going, oh my goodness, I never noticed. Did you see chapter 41 right here in verse 10? Oh, did you see chapter 66 in verse 12? Oh man, look at, look at verse three, chapter four and five. Oh, and they were just like, it was like lights clicking on and it was so fun to watch because what they had been spending their quiet time on when they met with the Lord that maybe didn't even make a lot of sense when they were reading it, all of a sudden, now that we're looking at it through the lens of Christ, it just became something else. It's like going from black and white to color. It's going from regular TV to 3D, or even more so. How many of you remember the first time you saw an HD TV at Costco, right? You walked up and you were like, oh, that, that's almost too sharp. It's too hard to look at. That's what this is like. It, when we get the Old Testament, when we get what the Bible's doing, it fleshes out Jesus in a way that goes, yeah, okay, he hit 600 prophecies but he hit every single one of the thousands of words in that Old Testament. Even more amazing. What a miracle. Jesus is the main point. Jesus is the point of all of it. All of it points forward to him. So, if you remember at the beginning of the year, I challenged our church to be reading their Bibles every day. We put out reading plans, we put out devotionals, and things like that. So let's do a checkup. How are we doing with that? How are you doing with it? Are you in the Word every day? And here's the awesome thing. Lord willing, He doesn't come back today, but would be awesome. But if He doesn't come back today, you've got tomorrow. You've got today still. So let's get back into it. Let's get back into God's Word. It's not just, oh, I'm, I mean, because this is when it gets drudgery, doesn't it? If you're reading your Bible 
and you're reading it on the chronological, you're in about Deuteronomy or Leviticus or Numbers. Those are hard. But understand that as we get into that, the more we read, the more we can see Jesus clearly. And you may not see it at the moment you're in it in the morning or in the evening or whenever you do it. It may be when you come to a church service. It may be when you're talking to someone about another portion and it goes, bink, and you're like, how did I miss that? So get back into it. Restart. Okay, there we go. That's my teacher hat. We've done our Old Testament understanding. Now let's get into the passage. So starting in verse one, here's the setting, okay? It says, um, it says that we are in the wilderness of Judea. So Matthew has skipped ahead 25 years or so, maybe 30, depending on how old Jesus was when the Magi came. He skipped ahead to this John the Baptizer thing. And I call him John the Baptizer because I don't want you guys to feel special because we're Baptists and we're also like John the Baptist, okay? He was a baptizer. He wasn't a part of a denomination. And the word literally means the one who baptizes. So it works either way. But this portion is so important that all four of the Gospels, Mark, Luke, John, and right here in Matthew, include John the Baptist. So this is something important. Not only do they include him, but they include his message. So we need to get a hold of this. This is really the first sermon of the book of Matthew. So we need to really get what John is saying. So this wilderness area is not the place where the Israelites wandered. This is the place just east of Jerusalem and west of the Dead Sea. It's down where Jericho would be. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's hilly. It's, it's, it's just not a great place to live. So that's where this is all taking place. It's about a day's walk away from Jerusalem, out into the middle of nowhere, where robbers and bandits would, would get you, okay? So that's the setting. Now let's talk about this guy, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Who was John the Baptizer? So I'm going to put some questions up here on the, on the screen, and then I'm going to answer them using the Bible. So the first question is, who was John the Baptizer? Verse 3 tells us, for this is he who spoke by the prophet Isaiah when he said, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So the first thing we see is he is a herald of Jesus. He's a herald of Christ. Now that word herald is not a word we would normally use, but it fits perfectly for what John the Baptist is. A herald is somebody who runs ahead of the king and announces the king is coming with a trumpet, with a loud voice with something. And that's what John the Baptist is doing here. He's announcing the coming king. This verse starts off with the word for. It's an important word. It's saying here is the reason why John the Baptist is here. Now not only does all four gospels mention John the Baptist, they mention this verse as well. They mention this Isaiah 40 verse 3. So this was clearly something that all the apostles got. They got that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy. Then verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I have a, a picture here I want to show you. This is from a kid's book. Go ahead and click it, Kyle. This is from a kid's book, and I mean, I think this is kind of a tame version of John the Baptizer, right? He's kind of just, he's like the pre-hippie hippie, right? Living out in the middle of nowhere, eating crazy food, Right? But that's not why this is included there, even though that's a really fun page and try to explain to your kids why they're eating locusts and honey. 
But the reason why John is described here, I asked myself this, why is this included? They didn't describe what the Magi looked like. They didn't describe Herod and the little vein that pulses out of his head when he gets mad. They didn't do any of that, but they stopped with John the baptizer. Why? Well, that's because the next thing we see about John the baptizer is that he's a prophet. This is connecting him to being a prophet. See, when John the baptizer is described this way, he is, they're, they're looking at him and saying, he looks a lot like somebody, I'm trying to remember, oh, he looks a lot like Elijah. As a matter of fact, Elijah is described in 2 Kings 1.8 as wearing a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. This would have been very familiar language to the Israelites. And the Israelites should understand, the Jews should understand, because this means if he is like Elijah, then that means the one that comes after him is the king. Look at Malachi 4.5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is, this is what John is saying. John is saying not only by John being there, but he's also saying it by his words. This is the Lord. This goat or camel hair would have been uh, waterproof, so it would have kept him uh, out of the elements. It also was very typical of people that lived in this area. His garments, ironically, are, are a testimony to what he's calling people to do. Compared to the Sadducees and Pharisees who would have been dressed as nice as possible, he would have looked like a vagabond. Similar to sackcloth and ashes. When the Israelites would wear that, they were saying, we are, we are putting ourselves lower. So John's outfit visualizes his call to repentance. Not only that, he's eating some kind of crazy food. I think most of the, the children in the room would go, okay, you know what, uh, your vegetables, mom or dad, that sounds a lot better than eating live grasshoppers. And there may be a few that are like, I'll take the grasshoppers. I know at least one that would. So what does this mean? What is this locusts and honey? So what's interesting, locusts would have provided the protein and the honey would have provided the carbohydrates. But there's more to it than that. In the Bible, locusts always represent judgment and honey represents blessing. So even what John the Baptist is eating, even what he's eating is his message of there's judgment coming, but repentance leads to blessing. What a cool picture. What an interesting individual. Then we'll skip ahead to verse 11 to learn a little more about John the baptizer. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the final thing we see about John the baptizer is that he is a humble servant of the king. John compares himself to the one who's coming up after him, and he sees that he is way, way, way lacking by comparison. And you, you, we see it and we say, oh, he won't carry his sandals. What's the big deal? Well, the cleaning and carrying of sandals was the lowest of the low servant job. So if you're the new servant, you're getting that job. Other servants have nicer jobs. John the Baptist is saying, I'm so low by comparison, I shouldn't even be touching his sandals. That's how low I am. What an incredible picture. I mean, think about how easy it would be for John the baptizer with all these people coming out to see him to think that he was something special. Wow, okay, today I had 150 here. Yesterday it was only 70. I must be something special. But instead he says, no, don't look to me, look to Christ. No wonder later in Matthew, Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever lived. Pretty phenomenal. 
John's life is a living parable of this repentance. He is totally sold out. Think about the sacrifices he had to make in order to model this lifestyle. Living in the wilderness. Living out there in camel's cloth, in, in camel cloth. Eating things that are still squirming as you swallow them. So what does this mean for us? What's the application here? Okay, we need to move to Eastern Oregon and we need to find ourselves some locusts and we need to find ourselves some honey. And honestly, if it was me, I'd starve to death. I think most of us would. We would, we would not do well. We're not called to that because that was John the Baptist's call. That was his unique calling. But his life is a model of the willingness we're to have for whatever the Lord tells us to do. I mean, he offers a corrective, doesn't he, to the materialism and the consumerism and the selfishness that we have. John the Baptist is saying, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Because remember, Jesus says, take up your cross and what? Deny yourself daily, daily. John the Baptist is a picture of that right here, right now, before Christ even goes to the cross. So, if you think about this past year, we're coming up on the one year anniversary of starting the lockdowns. We've had to deny ourselves stuff. We've had to deny ourselves lots of things. You know, our, our, our indulgences have been forcibly reduced. And we don't, don't necessarily like that, do we? As a matter of fact, maybe part of what's going on in this world is the Lord's doing some surgery on the things that we are attached to too much, right? I mean, Many of you went several days without power or internet or heat. What did those days look like? What has our last year looked like with this corrective, this, this uh, denial being forced on us? Did we take the time that we have now with no commutes and no sporting events, no movie theaters, no restaurants, no big gatherings? Did we take that time to reorient ourselves to the Lord or did we discover more binge-watchable things on TV? Did we discover new things to buy and to absorb our attention? Where are we on this? I have a group of men that I meet with who, uh, they don't go to this church, but we have a Bible study, and we, we do reports every single week, and we say, how did you do on your Bible reading this week? And I tell you, this last year, all of them would say, we did terrible. I would barely get two or three days a week, if that which is amazing because most of these men have a 40-minute commute. Most of these men work, you know, 50 hours a week, but now are no longer doing either of those. So where did the time go? How did they lose that? So do we need to wait for the next big thing, economic downturn, the next virus, the next whatever, in order to get our lives focused like John the Baptist on, hey, what, what, what can I cut out and what can I then how can I get out things out of my life so I can put more of Christ, more of his word, more of him in my life? What can I deny in my life today that's in the way of my life with him, the only life that matters? So that, that, that's what we can learn from John the Baptist is this idea of what do I really need and what are those wants that I can put aside and say, I need God's word in my life. So there's John the baptizer. So who was it that went out to him? That's the next question we're going to ask. Who are these people? Because we want to see where we are in this group. Are we a part of the group that would go out to him? Or are, are we just, you know, watching nearly 2,000 years later? 
So verse five, then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were coming out to him, going out to him. So who was it that went to him? Well, you could say it was Jewish people. Yes, it was. But it's more than that. These are people that are longing to see the king. They're longing to hear that the king is coming. The king is coming. Like in the Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Mr. Beaver says, Aslan's on the move. Right? And that gives them comfort. They're going, he's here, he's moving, where is he? I don't know, but let's get ready for him. And so the people that are going out to John the baptizer are the ones who are longing for the coming king. All of Jerusalem, all of Judea. And John's purpose here, his sole purpose is not to make his following great, it's to make people prepared for the one who comes after him, to announce the king. Well, it wasn't just the people who were longing to hear of the everyday folk. There were a few others. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. So the next group we see is we see the religious people. We see religious people. Now, Pharisees and Sadducees are going to play a big role in the future as we go into the book of Matthew. And so we're going to talk about them a little more later when some of the nuances of their beliefs matter. But for right now, what you need to know is they are a cross between a political party and a religious faction or religious leaders. So it's kind of the mix of those two together. These two groups will constantly be fighting against the coming of the kingdom of God. Pharisees are your average, everyday people who are trying to, through the actions they do that are religious, earn their way to heaven. The Sadducees are the rich people trying to hold on to their best life now. They're trying to hold on to living their rich life by making sure everybody below them doesn't touch it. So these, these groups are going to be a constant thorn in Jesus' side. So it says, coming to their baptism. Now, the way this is worded, it looks like it may be that they're being baptized or may not, but that's really not what this is saying. What this is saying is they're coming to see what's going on. People are flocking to John the baptizer, and they're going, hey, what about me? What about me? I'm your local Pharisee. You should be with me. So they're going to check on John. What's interesting and kind of pathetically sad is this is the same group that last week wouldn't walk four miles to see the king, but they're willing to walk all day, spend a night in the wilderness. There's no Hilton out in the wilderness where John's staying. And then walk all the way back just to see a guy who says the king's coming. Isn't it ironic? It's, it's kind of sad that they missed Jesus. They could just walk. It was four miles. You could do that before lunch. Come on, Pharisees, Sadducees. But now John the Baptist, oh man, there's so many people going to him. So you kind of can see why they're going. They're going because lots of people are there. We want people focusing on us. So John the baptizer calls him out and he says, you have unbelief, you have hypocrisy. And we'll see what he says about that here in a second. So everyone came out to see this John. They all came out. What did they all have in common? What they all had in common, whether they were willing to admit it or not, is they had distance from God. They had a distance between them and God. They were missing something. Whether it's your average, everyday Judean who's like, yeah, I, I don't feel close to God, but it says his kingdom's coming. I'm going to go find out. Or the Pharisees who don't have a relationship but are going, 
I need to figure this out. I need to go and see what this is going on. There's a, there's a lack of relationship, which ties into the next thing we're gonna look at, which is John's message. What did John preach? What did he preach? Because John's solution for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other people is the same for both groups. And we see it in verse two. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So I would say it like this. Repent, the kingdom is near. The kingdom is coming. It's almost here. So we got this real churchy word, repent. Repent. Metaneo in the Greek. It literally means to change one's mind. But that's not strong enough. That, that, that's the literal translation. But how the Bible portrays this is to change your mind so as to change all of you. Because we do this, right? We'll be, uh, I want a Diet Coke. No, I changed my mind. It's a Diet Pepsi. That's not what we're talking about. You didn't repent right there, okay? You should probably repent of drinking Diet Coke because Diet Pepsi is the only good one, right? But to repent is to never go that other direction, to, to choose a new direction. It's a radical transformation of the entire person. And this is a key word throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, every single recorded sermon in the book of Acts by the apostles has the word repent in it at least once. And it's the main point. They're saying, don't go this way, turn and go that way. Not only is it for people outside of the family, but it's also for people inside. Look at what Acts 17.30 says. It says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. Repent. Doesn't matter the audience. It doesn't matter whether it's Greek, Roman, Jew, Gentile. Repent is the message. And this theme of repentance keeps going. It's throughout the New Testament. In, Cor in Corinth, we have a church where it's got believers, but they're having all sorts of problems back and forth. And look at what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. He says, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Paul's writing to believers, and he's saying, you know what? Yeah, you did something wrong. You should feel grief about it and then repent. See, we like to think of repenting as something you do to become a Christian. But repenting is something you do because you're a Christian. It's what we are. We have to constantly be repenting. Don't take my word for it. The Apostle John, when he writes his seven letters to the church in Revelation, the churches in Revelation, five of the churches are in some problems. And what does he tell each one of them? Repent. To Pergamum, repent. To Sardis, repent and receive. Remember, keep what you've learned, repent. To Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Repent with zealotry. Go do it vibrantly. Ephesus, but I have this against you. You've abandoned your love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Repent. Charles Spurgeon says, since repentance is continual, believers must repent until their dying day. 
So it's different though. To become a Christian, you repent of your sins and you ask for forgiveness for the first time and you are ushered into a part of God's kingdom. We as believers, we've already entered the kingdom and so we repent because we have, we have, we have gone against the king. We have hurt the king. We have done something to besmirch the name of the king. So do you repent? Do we repent? Francis Raworth, a Puritan, wrote, Repentance is as vowels in an alphabet, which we have not only need of to spell with while we are children, but to read with when we are men in Christ. Repentance is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's not a one-time thing. Why? Because our sinning is not a one-time thing. We continually sin. So all of the Christian life is repentance. And then our fruit comes from that. Now catch this part. What was the problem that they had? They didn't feel close to God. They did not have a connection with God. They wanted relationship with God. So here's how you get that. Anyone in here feel that? Anyone feel distant from Christ, from relationship with God? Then repent. Repentance is the key to relationship with God. Repentance opens up the floodgates of relationship with God. And if you think you don't have anything to repent of, first repent of not repenting, and then begin repenting for the things that the Holy Spirit brings out. He's waiting. He's there. He wants that relationship with you. So this repentance is showing not only that the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is right here in me. See, kingdom is not a realm. It's not a place. That's what Herod was worried about, right? He was worried about Jesus taking away his little spot of land. The kingdom is about the ruler, and the ruler rules everything. So when it says the kingdom is at hand, he's saying the Messiah is here. His kingdom rule is everywhere. Is he ruling in you? So God's new world is here. And repentance is turning around and facing it. In reality, God's sending Christ allows us to be able to turn towards the kingdom and not be destroyed. Instead, we can join this kingdom. John the baptizer is like a first century Paul Revere. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. And then Jesus shows up. We'll see that next week. He calls for repentance. He says, turn from your sin and turn towards the kingdom. It's bearing down on you. It's either gonna crush you or you can turn and see it and be a part of it. Those who look back have their backs to sin. C.S. Lewis helps us here with his, his testimony about how he became a believer. This is what he says. You must picture me alone in my room night after night, feeling whatever, whenever my mind lifted from a, for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come upon me, and at last I gave in, and I admitted that God was God. And I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. See, when, when we repent and we turn towards God, yes, we're turning our backs on all the sins that have been our dear friends for years and years and years. But we're also turning to the one who came to save us, the one who died for us. 
And John's teaching is saying, you gotta do this. This is, why, this is how you enter the kingdom. So what else is John teaching? Verse six, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. So we see baptism and confession of sins. We'll deal with baptism a little more in depth next week, but baptism simply means to plunge under the water like the dirty volleyball going into the soapy water. It means to dunk. This baptism, this, this idea of baptism, not at the temple, was something that somebody would do to become Jewish. If you were a Gentile, you had to be baptized to be able to become part of the Jewish religion, the Jewish nationality. There were other things, but that was the start. So when the Jews are going out to John and taking on this baptism, they're saying, even though we're part of God's people, we're not a part of God's family. What an incredible picture this baptism is. You can see why the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like it. Because they're going, well, we're fine. We're, we, don't, we don't need this. We don't need to be baptized into some family. We are the family. So we confess our sin. We don't, we don't deny it. We don't blame it on someone else. We confess it. We own it. We admit it. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is echoed by John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the inside. So this is what we call believer's baptism. It's the profession of faith. And like I said, we'll talk about a little more about baptism next week as we see Jesus baptized. So John's message, be baptized, become a part of God's family, confess your sins. Verse seven, but when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So the next thing John's preaching is he's preaching the wrath of God is coming. See, John has detected that these, these Pharisees and Sadducees, there's some hypocrisy here. Not only is there hypocrisy, but there's poison. He calls them a brood of vipers, which means a family of vipers. And vipers were incredibly dangerous because they blended in. Remember in, in the book of Acts, Paul reaches into a bundle of sticks and a viper latches onto him. Why? Because they look like sticks when they're sitting very still. And so these, these, these leaders are venomous. They look, not, they look harmless, but in fact, they're teaching falsehood. They're teaching the wrong thing. And these hidden vipers are spreading their poison everywhere. So John says, the wrath to come. What's he talking about? He's saying, this is what happens if you don't repent. If you do not repent and become a part of God's family, the wrath is going to be poured out on you. Now, we've talked about the wrath of God before. It's not God being irritable. He's not having a bad day. It is actually the love of God in friction with the justice of God. It's the love of God in friction with things that don't match up with righteousness. See, God, it's the warm, steady, patient, but absolutely fair grace of God in collision with selfishness. See, God's wrath does not contradict, it lo convict, contradict his love, it proves it. The love that pampers injustice is not love. So this, this entire section just is pointing to the fact that there is wrath coming. There is wrath coming. And you can either turn towards it and plead with God, or you can pretend to run away from it and it will overtake you. Verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
So bear fruit from your repentance. When you repent, it should be obvious by the fruit you see. Now it's important that we get the order here because it's really easy to think that Christianity is about cleaning up the outside and doing certain things and then that makes you right with God. No, you are to be made right with God through repentance and then the actions follow. They flow out of that. Repentance produces a lifestyle that looks a certain way. It's not, I do the lifestyle to then repent. You repent, and then the lifestyle flows from it. So we have the Spirit convicts us, we repent. The Spirit fills us, and then we show it by the acts we do. So where are we in this? Verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So this shows us that there's only one birth that matters. There's one birth that matters. See, they were claiming Abraham as their father. They're saying, well, we're a part of the Jewish nation. We're not going to hell. There's no judgment on us. They might need to go back and read their Bibles because there was countless times of judgment because they did not repent. They did not follow through. But see God's grace here? God's grace. It's not about who you're related to. It's not about what you've done it's about him. He's the one that does it. He's the one that did it. Because if you think about it, what did Abraham do? They want to tie themselves to Abraham. Was Abraham out there and he was the best of the best and he worked his way to God? No, God goes, you, you're mine, come here. And even then, his, his wife's womb was barren and God brought about the nation of Israel from Abraham. And John's saying, God's doing it again. God is doing it again right here with the people that are coming out. He's making his new family. See, this baptism of John would have been incredibly offensive because it's saying we need to be like outsiders in order to be on the inside. When the Pharisees were saying, we're the insiders, everyone else is on the outside. John's message was for all of them to bring them in. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees don't know that they're sick. So when the physician shows up, they don't know that he has the solution. And John's trying to break them of that. We have to see that we're fallen before we see that we need a savior. Otherwise, it, there's no reason. Why go? And that's where we see these Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 10, even now the ax is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we see in verse 10 that judgment is near for those without fruit. Laid at the root means it's aimed, it's ready to go. The ax is ready to cut. And it doesn't matter where its roots are, it's the fruit that determines whether it gets chopped down. A criteria for the, the, fruit, the tree to be saved is its fruit. Because remember, a fruitless Christian is not a Christian at all. Remember the book of James? We talked about this quite a bit. Every age of Christians needs to hear this message. If you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, you need to repent and allow the fruit to flow. Too often we, we bank on past experiences or where we were raised or what we've done, whether it's we're in a Christian country or a Christian family or I'm a member of a Christian church or I've said the words to make me a Christian, but then the evidence isn't there. If the evidence isn't there, John is saying, that's a scary place to be. 
Because the only way to know that a convert or a respondent to an altar call or a church member is saved is the fruit that must be apparent. These religious leaders believed that they were fine because they, they were there, they showed up. And the fact that they were born Jews would get them in. But that's not what John allows them to do. So what does this mean for us? Well, it means that repenting once is not enough. Praying once is not enough. Making a commitment is not enough. Because even if you've done all of that and you're living like hell right now, you're not a believer. Instead, you need to repent and allow the fruit to flow. He's saying it's not about joining a club. It's not about, cha- it's about changing a direction. It's about going somewhere else. It's like a starving man who's heard there's bread in the, next door town, the town next door and he will do everything, including crawling on his bloody hands and knees to get to the bread. Or like someone who knows there's a plague in their city and they are gonna run for their lives, leaving everything behind. Both of those pictures is the response we are to have to Christ. And it's a lifetime response. It's not a one-time response. So what is the deal with all this fruit? It seems very outwardly focused and I'm worried about what you guys are thinking about my fruit. But that's not the way this works. That, that is part of it. You all need to be my fruit inspector. I need to be your fruit inspector. But it's more, and, and it's more importantly this. I need to inspect my fruit. I need to know whether or not I am in the kingdom by looking at my fruit. And that's what we see here with John. John is saying, Pharisees, you're not producing fruit and you know it. And if the Pharisees were honest with themselves, they would have said, yeah, you're right. You know, I walked all this way, not because I love God. I walked all this way because I wanted to compete with John the Baptist. I wanted popularity. I wanted whatever. You know whether you're producing fruit or not. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. If those aren't evident, analyze yourself right now. If those aren't evident, then you need to repent and ask the Lord to bring those up in you because there's nothing worse than spending a lifetime in church and not being saved. Nothing worse than that. So analyze yourself. At the end of the service, we're going to be doing communion together. There is no better time than today. We are not guaranteed another hour So if you have no fruit, repent and ask the Lord to begin growing that fruit. So not only the people around you see it, but so that you know I am in the kingdom. I'm starting to look like the king. I'm starting to act like the king. I'm a part of the family. The fruit must be there. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The king is coming to baptize too. Jesus is gonna baptize us. This baptism we see here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's what we see in Acts 1 and 2, which for us is, praise God, all past tense which means the Holy Spirit is here, which means that fruit that I just pleaded with you to have can be had because the Spirit lives inside of you. And that Spirit will fill you up to overflowing so that you produce those fruit. You know, we see this and it looks like two baptisms, Holy Spirit and fire, but it's actually one and the same. And for the Christian, the Holy Spirit and fire means purifying you 
for the non-Christian, the Holy Spirit and fire is judgment. It's painful. And so this is the picture that John is giving us, this idea of how believers will feel it as refining and purifying. It won't always tickle. It will, it will sometimes not be comfortable, but the Holy Spirit in our life is purifying. In the life of a non-believer, the Holy Spirit, the fire is destructive. And so that's the picture he's giving us. And he, he confirms it here in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. And the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the thing we see is judgment is coming with the king. Judgment is coming. A winnowing fork is a pitchfork used to grab the wheat and throw it up in the air. And the, the grains fall and the chaff blows away. And then is gathered up and thrown into fire. So the wheat, like believers, were preserved, were safeguarded. And the chaff, the unbelievers, are destroyed. And this unquenchable fire, is, it signifies hell. It signifies judgment. It signifies destruction. There is never a better time to repent than right now. The nearness of the kingdom calls for repentance. That's what John is saying. And John and Jesus both don't mince words throughout. There will be some who will repent and those who won't. So how do you know which one you are? Repent. Repent. So what does this mean for us today? Well, it's pretty simple. I'm gonna let John Baptist's message for each and every one of us. Repent. Confess, repent, and turn. Whether you've been a believer your whole life, you've been a believer for a few months, there's more repenting to go. If the Apostle Paul can call himself the chief of sinners and write 13 books of the New Testament and say that he needs to repent, then you bet we all do. Repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that you have stirred up in us through this. I know that I have been incredibly blessed by this passage. And so, Lord, I pray that we would repent. I pray that no matter whether we see it as a big sin or a small sin, we would repent of it and we would turn back to you and mend the relationship, Lord, with us. And then send your spirit to make us overflow with the fruit of the spirit. That it would show not only so people around us can see it, but Lord, so that we know that we are in relationship with you. Our biggest need is relationship with you. Whether we've known you for decades or if we've known you for days, we need more of you. So Lord, show us where we need to repent right now. In your name, amen.